Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. Com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 37. And um, my topic for discussion today is something that I think is on everyone's mind at this point, and that is Hillary Clinton. So uh, I, I've skipped talking about Hillary Clinton a whole lot uh, because I think everyone knows who she is, or at least who listens to this podcast knows who she is. And But there's something I want to bring to the table about some, con- some historical context in this particular case with Hillary Clinton. Of course, the left would like you to believe the historical context is that this is a monumental moment in American history because we have the first time in American history that a political party has uh, nominated, or at least a major political party, meaning the Republicans or the Democrats, has nominated a woman for president. And so this is a great moment in American history. Uh, This is going to be as transformational as Barack Obama being nominated by the Democratic Party in 2008. And so here we are standing at the cusp of history, that we're about ready to enter into a new era where a woman can become or will be, in their mind, president of the United States. Now, I think Hillary has a very good chance of being elected president of the United States. Uh, But there are some warning signs, of course, all the baggage and everything else. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that, uh, that uh, would seem to point to uh, a possibility that she won't be elected and that Donald Trump has a very good uh, chance. I think he has a better chance than people realize. Um, and I think that that chance could mean that Trump wins. Now, I know that, you know, of course, there's a lot of libertarians listen to this podcast and you're not uh, that high on Donald Trump. Uh, Trump has his problems. Though, um, I think that uh, if he had the right advisors, as I've said in several podcasts, Trump might be okay. So what I'd like to do, though, is not focus on Trump, but talk about Clinton. And again, within context, historical context, what does Hillary Clinton represent? So Barack Obama has come out and said that Hillary Clinton is the most qualified person ever nominated for president of the United States. And this has already been discussed. Uh, Kevin Goodsman wrote a nice little piece about this, but... Um, I'll just add this to it. When Obama said that Hillary Clinton was the most qualified person ever to be nominated for president of the United States, I mean, it was a bald-faced lie, a spin tactic to try to paint Hillary Clinton as something that she is not, and that is a qualified person for president. So when you say she is the most qualified, I guess you would have to uh, say that she's better qualified than George Washington or John Adams or Thomas Jefferson, or James Madison, or James Monroe, or John Quincy Adams. I'm not a Quincy Adams fan, but uh, the man was much more qualified than Hillary Clinton. 
Uh, I mean, take your pick, really, from from the founding generation and then even that second generation. So uh, you can make a case that Andrew Jackson was more qualified than Hillary Clinton. Uh, you could make a case that definitely that Martin Van Buren was more qualified than Hillary Clinton. Uh, perhaps even William Henry Harrison. Now, he was a real outsider, uh, but you know John Tyler was more qualified than Hillary Clinton. Uh, James K. Polk was more qualified than Hillary Clinton. I mean, I, we could almost go through everybody in the 19th century uh, leading up to 1860 and say that they were more qualified than Hillary Clinton. Uh, now, when you get beyond the war, which is really, again, the, the turning point, the watershed moving us into the modern era, uh, you could say that some of the people that were there, I mean, you know, similar to Clinton in their, in their background, but still, even in the 20th century, you're going to find people that were much more qualified than Hillary Clinton to be president of the United States. I think that this is a, a disastrous statement by Barack Obama, among many that he's ever made, but this one's really bad, too. So Hillary Clinton is not the most qualified person in the history of the United States to be nominated for president. Uh, maybe the most corrupt, and I think that's what I want to focus on in this. Now, if you're on my e- email newsletter, I already sent out an email uh, newsletter about this, an article that I had written back in June. For It was published by Breitbart and townhall.com uh, about the 1884 election. So that's where I would like to focus my energy a little bit on that particular point. Um, the 1884 election, people have asked me several times, what is the most comparable election to the 2016 election? And some people are pulling out, you know, 1912 or 1860. Uh, you know, 1912 is an interesting one because you had four major candidates for president. And I could see this election with the way some things are working out here. You're going to have Gary Johnson, and there are a lot of libertarians, and even non-libertarians are going to vote for Gary Johnson. Um whether that's a good idea or not, we could, we could debate that. And if Gary Johnson's a really good libertarian, we could debate that too. But I think there are a lot of people who are going to vote for Johnson simply as a protest against Donald Trump. And uh, vote your conscience. I mean, I, I think that's something that everyone should, should do is vote your conscience. Now, we can debate whether voting for president really has any impact or not. I mean, whether voting for federal elections is really the, as important as other things. But I've already talked about that too in previous podcasts. So You've got that. And then you've got the Green Party, which now might have an all-female ticket. Uh, So they've nominated a female for president. I don't see headlines splashed across the news. (gasps) Green Party nominates female candidate for president. No, of course not, because it's not a quote-unquote major political party. But what is a major political party? I mean, aren't all political parties, quote-unquote national parties, major by default? I mean, you would think so. But no, because it's not the Republicans or Democrats. This is the stupid world we live in. So uh, you've got the Green Party, which might poll. I mean, there's there's lots of people saying, particularly if um, one of the other, if they get an all-female ticket, there's speculation the Green Party could get over 5% in the election. And, of course, uh, so could the uh, the Libertarians. I mean, there's a possibility they could get 10 to 15%. So, I mean, now you're talking about 20% of the voting electorate sliced off. The Green Party is going to pull from Clinton. Uh, so will the Libertarian Party in some ways. There are a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters, from what I understand, who might vote for the Libertarian, which uh, would be interesting. The Libertarians, of course, people think that's going to hurt Trump. I don't see, if, if there's a four-person race, I don't see any of the candidates getting 50% of the popular vote. 
which would bring us to 1912, where you didn't have any of the major candidates getting 50% of the popular vote. Same thing in 1916. So I think you could make a case that the 2016 election is going to be like an election 100 years ago. And I made the case back in uh, 2008 and 2012 that uh, those elections very much mirrored what we had in 1912, uh, where you had no conservative candidate running. I mean, you had all progressives. And I, you know Donald Trump is progressive in many ways. Um, all of your major candidates are. So um, it's interesting how how progressivism has so taken over the United States uh, that you that's in 1912 I think really was the turning point in that where you didn't have an opportunity for anyone who wasn't a progressive to be nominated and I think you're looking at that uh, even in some ways uh, today. All right, so it's not 1912 though that's the real election here. It's it's 1884. And why do I say 1884? And this is what I, I focused on in the piece. It's entitled Donald the Good. In 1884, you had the Republicans nominate a man named James Blaine of Maine. Now, and the Democrats nominated Grover Cleveland of New York. So there's a similarity right there. You've got Trump from New York, and you've got Cleveland from New York. I mean, both dyed-in-the-wool New Yorkers. Uh, and, and Trump is that. I mean, there's no doubt about it. He is New York through and through. And so was Grover Cleveland. And then you had Blaine of Maine. Now, Blaine is similar to Clinton in that he was a carpetbagger. Now, he's not really from Maine. Clinton's not really from New York. Uh, Clinton is from Illinois originally, and then, of course, lived in Arkansas where she was married to Bill Clinton and then uh, moved on to New York in order to be elected to the Congress. And I think that's where Blaine and Clinton are very similar as well. Blaine is actually from Pennsylvania. And that's where he, he grew up. That's really where he cut his teeth. And then uh, later on, his wife uh, was from Maine. And uh, he moved to Maine after he bought a newspaper there and started investing in coal mines in Pennsylvania and Virginia. So Blaine uh, was one of these guys who um, liked government activity to line his pockets. Uh, without a doubt, that's exactly what uh, Blaine was doing. Uh, so Blaine started becoming part of this Republican establishment uh, while he served in Congress. In fact, he wrote a, a two-volume work entitled 20 Years in Congress from his time in Congress from uh, 1861 uh, essentially until 1881. And it was during this time period that, uh, that Blaine became very much ingrained in the corruption that became uh, the Republican Party. So Blaine is perhaps the most corrupt man ever to be nominated by a major party. And I think only, maybe only rivaled by Hillary Clinton. So when you look at Blaine, uh, first of all, the, the accusation against Blaine centered on uh, the fact that Blaine, as I said in the piece, was a liar, a cheat, a crook, and a phony statesman. Now, he was, as one uh, magazine said, the king of the lobby, and particularly when it came to news—I'm sorry—to uh, to railroad interests. Um, 
He was implicated in the credit mobilier fiasco. Uh, Even though he was cleared of that, he later was found to be taking bribes from other railroad companies uh, in order for legislation. And this was part of the great railroad expansion of uh, of the late 19th century. A lot of people don't realize now how corrupt this actually was. Now, there was a, a great show on AMC entitled Hell on Wheels, which really got into this uh, quite, quite nicely, in fact, how corrupt the, the railroads actually were and how, how far their tentacles reached into Congress. Congressional leaders were making tremendous money via kickbacks and other things on railroad investments. So what they would do is the railroad companies would offer them stock or other things uh, in return for legislation, which was essentially voting themselves money. That's what the credit mobilier fiasco was all about, which implicated all kinds of people, uh, including uh, James Garfield, who was later elected president in 1880. Um, or I should say before, you know, before 1884, you had Garfield, who was implicated in the credit mobilier fiasco. Uh, Shula Colfax was also involved in it. And so were many other members of Congress. So they were getting deals uh, from the stockholders just to vote themselves money. I mean, this is, this is the epitome of corruption. So Blaine was involved with that. Uh, and not necessarily in credit mobilier, but in terms of other railroad contracts. In fact, there's something called uh, the, uh, the uh, Mulligan Letters. Uh, which were <clears throat> written, <laughs> which were written to uh, essentially say, "Look, if you do this and this and this, I'll give you, I'll make sure your legislation gets passed." And he uh, was able to uh, vote himself money. And in fact, some of the letters contain the the evidence: burn this letter. And uh, they were produced, and it really tainted Blaine's uh, reputation. So Blaine was seen as a tool of big business, a man who was corrupt, a man who uh, was the example example of um, everything that was wrong with Congress. He exemplified corruption. He personified corruption. But he was still nominated anyways by the Republican Party. Why? Because the Republican Party was in favor of all of these type of underhanded tricks. And so Cleveland comes around and positions himself as the man who's going to clean up corruption. And Cleveland had this particular reputation from New York first as mayor of Buffalo, then as governor of New York. And so as, uh, as mayor of Buffalo, he cr- cleaned up all kinds of corruption when it came to local contracts, where you had essentially the same thing that was happening at, in Washington, D.C., happening at the local level, where uh, there were uh, business contracts that the government was handing out that were going to their cronies, and, and people were getting kickbacks. So uh, Cleveland comes into Buffalo and cleans all that up. And then he's elected governor of New York, and he does the same thing on a statewide scale. In fact, it was there's an old story about Grover Cleveland where uh, it was said that 
when people would come in to talk to Cleveland in his office, uh, he would leave the door open and he would talk extremely loud so that people could hear everything these people were saying to him. He didn't want any hint of corruption. And so, uh, Cleveland was positioned as the guy who was eminently qualified to clean up corruption. Now, uh, it was called Grover the Good. And there were moral scandals. You know, Cleveland had an illegitimate child, but he claimed it. And so people knew Cleveland wasn't a saint, yet um, people forgave him for that because they knew that the stakes were bigger than just somebody's moral failings. Also, the thing I didn't mention about Blaine, where he was similar to Hillary Clinton, was uh, he was Secretary of State, actually twice. Uh, So there's a connection there, but uh, Blaine was uh, appointed Secretary of State by James Garfield, and he served for a very brief time, actually resigned after Garfield was assassinated. Um, And then he was later Benjamin Harrison's Secretary of State. And this is interesting because, you know, you have uh, Blaine and Clinton, both as Secretary of State. The really interesting thing about Blaine as Secretary of State, though, is that Blaine was viewed as a corrupt Secretary of State. He was actually lining his pockets as Secretary of State. Now, there were some accusations made to this effect um, after in, in the period between uh, the two times, two terms of Secretary of State, uh, that he was a corrupt Secretary of State. That he, again, he personified this pers- perspective and perception of uh, corruption in in Washington, D.C. So did Hillary Clinton. We will look at the Clinton Foundation and all the the pay-to-play accusations that have been made, the Clinton cash and all these things. Uh, I mean, there's no doubt about it that the the Clintons have been making money on their status. And, of course, uh, if you want influence, well, just give money to the Clinton Foundation, which is a slush fund. The Clinton Foundation is a way for the Clintons to make money. And, of course, people are going to say, oh, no, 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 this is, uh, those on the left, this is a humanitarian effort on the part of the Clintons. Uh, They are just interested in helping people, you know, because they're good. They're good people. Uh, They just want to help people around the world. They want to solve poverty and uh, humanitarian crisis. This is what the Clinton Foundation is all about. It's preposterous. The Clinton Foundation is there for them to to, uh, pad their wallets, and nothing more. And this is the great fear with the Clinton Foundation because of all the money that's been sent into the Clinton Foundation. That's a pay-to-play scheme. You you give them money, and they give you access. And while Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, they give you access to the State Department. So this is, this is corruption at its highest level. And I think people don't necessarily realize that, at least the the sheep in the general public. I mean, again, people listening to this podcast probably understand that um, Clinton is corrupt, and they know Clinton is corrupt, and they they know the stories. What about other corrupt candidates, though? And I think uh, I wanted to bring that in here a little bit. So Hillary Clinton, I think you could make a case, other than James G. Blaine of Maine, actually from Pennsylvania, another carpetbagger. So Clinton from Illinois and Blaine from Pennsylvania originally are perhaps the two most corrupt candidates in history. But what about others? What about uh, Richard Nixon? Uh, you know, people would say Nixon wasn't corrupt. Um, of course, as president, there were tremendous accusations of, as, of corruption, and I think those are accurate. 
Um, was he corrupt as a candidate? I mean, he was ingrained in the political class, so I'm sure there were some, at some level, Nixon had some tinges of corruption. But I think one other that uh, we often don't think about as a guy who's corrupt, and that's Lyndon Johnson, or maybe even John F. Kennedy. Of course, Kennedy, the Kennedy family was extremely corrupt. Whether John F. Kennedy himself was is another question. As candidate, of course, his father was. I mean, if you're a Kennedy, you're corrupt. Um, but Lyndon Johnson, you know, he had the nickname of Landslide Lyndon, and that's because in Texas... Uh, he barely won election at one point, and lo and behold, some votes after the votes were cast show up in favor for Johnson, and he wins by a very slim majority. That's why his nickname was Landslide Lyndon. It's kind of like Abraham Lincoln. His nickname is Honest Abe because he wasn't really honest. Johnson wasn't really a landslide guy. Uh, he won the 1964 election in a landslide, not because of who he was, but because people were voting for him based on his promise to continue the Kennedy administration. And Kennedy had just been assassinated, so people were in mourning, and they thought, well, we'll vote in this guy. Whether Kennedy was a great president or not is another question. Uh, but Johnson was extremely corrupt. I mean, he was very good at political deals. He was a political kneecapper. This guy was out there cutting deals all the time. In fact, I mean, the really funny story about the 1960 election that uh, that Kennedy won. In 1956, there was actually a uh, floated that uh, Johnson would be the nominee and Kennedy would be his vice presidential nominee. Of course, Adlai Stevenson was renominated as the sacrificial lamb, but in 1960, the roles are reversed. And um, so Johnson was very much involved in all the backroom deals that led up to the 1960 election. I mean, Johnson was uh, very much a, a New Deal partisan, then later uh, Harry Truman... Uh, uh, fair deal partisan. Johnson was not clean uh, in terms of political baggage or uh, you know corruption. He, he wasn't a clean candidate. And what does this say? I mean, as we're moving forward, you see all these corrupt politicians really in the, la in the last 150 years. I think you could you could say that, of course, you know, politics was politics before 1860. Uh, but you really see a different type of person being nominated, for the most part, after the watershed in American history, which was the quote-unquote civil war. And that's because the central government becomes more powerful. And I think that's the, that's the lesson to be learned from all of these things. This power and this central authority, this unchecked power, there's no way the states can block the central authority anymore. And it's very easy to have access to, to these to this very small group of people. I mean, you're talking about uh, ultimately by the 20th century, 535 people or 536 people when you add the president, or uh, 545 people when you look at the Supreme Court. 545 people governing 320 million people now. It's very easy to have access to these people. The lobbies can get to these people, which is why Blaine was portrayed as the king of the lobbies. I mean, it was already going on in the late 19th century. These lobby interests had access to Washington, and the money flowed, and people were involved in this, and they became rich off of being elected to government. What does this say about the American political system? You don't have this as much at the state and local level. I mean, you do have people, you have corruption there, of course, and you have people getting rich there through state contracts and other things but not as bad as in Washington, D.C. 
In fact, it said if you go into Washington, D.C. as an elected official, you don't come out rich, you're either clean, a person of good moral principles, or you're stupid. Uh, because, you know, several people have gone into Washington without much money, and they come out ahead because they get all the right contacts, and they get jobs when they leave Washington. They get uh, influence and other things. I mean, again, look at Harry Reid. I mean, there's, but you could point to both sides of the aisle as people who have, you know, greased their palms and lined their pockets with government money, essentially, not not directly, but through influence. So this says a lot about our political system, which is why uh, you know one of the most interesting proposals ever made for a republic was Hume's proposal for the ideal republic, where he decentralized everything out to where lobbies could really have no influence in any at any level of government. When you have very few people controlling vast quantities of money, which is what you have in, in the United States government, you are going to have tremendous amounts of corruption. It is where the money is located, it is where the power is located, and it draws these psychopaths to it like, uh, you know, moss to a lantern. Except they're not fried by it because the American people don't fry them. <laughs> you know, the lantern doesn't work. Well, I mean, you're maybe, a, you know, a bug light, right? A lantern they come to and they don't get fried by that, but uh, it, it should be like a bug light. We should be frying these people as they go in there and uh, stop listening to them. I mean, this is where Think Locally, Act Locally comes in again. If you don't pay so much attention to the central authority and you start paying more attention to your state and local government, these people don't matter anymore. They lose legitimacy. So when you look at Hillary Clinton, she's not the most qualified person to be nominated for president. She's not the most... Uh, well, I think you can make a case she is the most corrupt person, but she's a one of several corrupt people who have been nominated for president. She's awful. And so, uh, you know, I, I can say that, well, it really doesn't matter who's president in a lot of ways. And in a lot of ways, it doesn't. It doesn't matter who's president. The presidency is so far off the rails, we've gone so far, that no single person can ever save the presidency. And what you would have, I think, in any particular case is a brief blip in the headlong cascade over the cliff, uh, which is what the United States is doing. And it's been doing that for the last 150 years. Um, you know, slowly but slowly, we've gotten closer and closer to the edge. And here we are. I think in many cases, we're right at the edge by this point. I mean, here we are, 2016. I really believe we're right at the edge. And no president's going to change anything. doesn't matter who they are. All this has to happen from the state and local governments. It has to happen from the bottom up. And if we don't do that, it doesn't matter who we vote for president. Uh, the president is not a miracle worker. We have a superhero mentality, and the president is not going to do anything of the kind. I think you could say, well, one president would be better than the other, perhaps. One candidate would be better than the other. I think, I mean, easily make that case. But in terms of lasting impact, um, I, I, none of these people are going to change the executive branch. That can only happen through the states and through uh, maybe an Article Five convention or through the states just simply saying no to the general government. I mean, any effort to rein in federal power should be pursued and explored. 
So again, when people ask you, what is the closest example that we have to 2016? It's 1884. You had the corrupt James Blaine against Grover the Good, and Blaine was just as tainted as Hillary Clinton. Uh, and there, there are a lot of similarities between the two. And I think that's one that you could point to and say, first of all, it's going to make you sound smart. People are going, you know something about the 1884 election? Wow. Um, but that's it. I mean, here we are. We're 1884 all over again. Nothing changes. We're still, as I tell my students all the time, we're living in the era of Reconstruction. We're still in it. We haven't gone beyond that. And so I think that's the important thing about uh, you know, understanding where we are. The United States is continually being recreated. And 2016 is no different. So that's my take on the 2016, at least on one candidate, Hillary Clinton, and what the comparison is. So I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. <laughs>